Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. I spoke at an event on Sunday night, uh, the Future Minds Network, uh, where I was quizzed. It was a big Q&A, and I think this is really appropriate uh, for beginners, I think. Quite a nice session, uh, speaking through some of the core concepts of property investing, raising finance, building a brand, and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Working with builders, of course, my favorite activity ever. So yeah, here we go. Uh, so yeah, my name is Tej. I'm from the Tej Talks podcast. I don't know if it's coming up in my background now, maybe it is. Um, I am a property investor, podcaster, and I help people with their brand and just other random stuff in business. Uh, and I've been in property for, hmm, I don't know, lockdown's gone on for who knows how long. So maybe 12 months now, maybe 14. It could be four years. I don't know. It feels like it feels like five. Um, and I purchased 15 properties in my first nine months. I haven't bought for the past four five months in lockdown and I don't know when I will buy again um podcast has had hundreds of thousands of listens in in many different countries it has been running for about two years so it has taken time to get to that position but um yeah I think that's everything I do I think so Ted like everyone knows you I'm pretty pretty sure but (laughs) we're just wondering like what is your why why did you choose property and who's your inspiration sure so um I think it's like at a base level it's the same as everyone else which is financial freedom or time freedom and wealth and be able to wake up one day and just say you know what I'm not going to work today I just I'm just going to chill or if something comes up and you're like you know what I'm going to take the evening off or you know just having the ability to do what you like when you like um is great as much as we're like entrepreneurs and we have to work all the time and I love it I'm never going to stop you sometimes just want to yeah, just just kind of forget it for a minute. So that was one of them. I think my original, original inspiration was like grand designs and amazing spaces. So seeing these programs and like just looking at the designs and thinking, wow, like I would love to do something like this. And actually even earlier than that, playing The Sims, if anyone knows The Sims video game, like old school video game, um, I used to, I didn't care about the humans. All I cared about was building an awesome house with a pool and all sorts of stuff, right? So it, my original design and inspiration, or my original inspiration and why was design and creating wonderful homes for people um, and the challenge of doing it efficiently on a budget. If I invested in central London, different story. I'd still have a budget, but it'd be like 10 times the size. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I mean, my why is probably to to travel, um, to open up future businesses without the intense pressure of has to be profitable, have to grow quickly, have to do this. I can just be really passionate in them and maybe have some social enterprise type businesses in the future as well. So there's a few different whys, but I think they all lead back to the kind of freedom, wealth, health kind of thing that we all look for, really. That's wicked. I love that. And you mentioned about your podcast. It's got hundreds of thousands of downloads, as I've seen. What actually made you start your podcast and your YouTube channel? So I I won a ticket to some education and I didn't find it that useful. I found there were a lot of details missing. I found the people who were teaching were 
kind of been there, done that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like you can always learn from anyone along the spectrum, you know, 50 years in it or, or five minutes in property, you can learn. But they just, they just didn't, I didn't really, they didn't really connect with me. They weren't relatable. I just felt like, okay, but like, tell me about your deal right now. Not your best deal from four years ago. Like that's like totally different market condition. So I thought, hold on a minute. Is there a way I can give, you know, somewhat, like almost like education away for free on some type of flat platform where I'm very efficient. So I listen I listen to podcasts on between two and three times speed. Same with audiobooks. So I thought at the time I was like, hold on a minute, Pe- YouTube. Okay, you got to kind of sit there. You got to watch, and it's kind of you have to have the window open. It's a bit. Mm. I thought writing again. You need to be looking at it to understand it. Whereas with the podcast it, i kind of went through everything and thought hold on a minute you could be at the gym you could be mowing the lawn you could be at tesco's um you could be you know uh, writing something you could be designing things you could be doing so many things with audio dead time that actually why don't i choose what i think is the most efficient way of getting learning to people and almost the easiest because i'm talking i'm not having to type or or edit a video or anything complex um and so i thought right let me give people access to people like us you know doing things right now here and now in these market conditions um if it can be free then great it can be free uh and yeah it's not difficult to like technically it's not difficult to do you know you don't need expensive adobe software you don't need an expensive mic it's it's very very easy technically to get started with so Ted have you had any kind of free mentorship or anyone that's been able to help you where you can just go and ask them questions and you haven't had to pay for it I would say that I've had that in some shape or form with most of the guests so whether it was at the time as soon as we finished recording or before I was like hey by the way I've got this issue or you know I've got this can you help me out with it or it was that we'd met or we'd spoken enough that over sort of time after the podcast within a few weeks or to this day I can whatsapp them and say hey look you know I haven't got a clue what do you reckon or hey I've never done a a commercial to resi Um, I've read some books but hey you're the expert on this you know let's have a chat let's let's do this and I think it's definitely an easy way to access that kind of free mentorship especially because I think the bigger it gets the more I can say, you've just you've just got 4,000 unique humans listening to your podcast within a few weeks of you being released. I've done a lot for you. And I think the smart people who've been in my podcast know that. And so therefore, they kind of automatically are so happy to help back. Um, so it's kind of, it's yeah, it's never been an official thing, but they kind of are always happy to help. And then we might become friends and things like that. So I can't think of anyone in particular. It's kind of been like a bit from everyone who's come on. Um, But to be honest, a lot of the guests don't do what I do. So a lot of them do HMOs or essays or a mix or, you know, things. So actually, I haven't had to get that free mentorship because I haven't. I've only had like a few kind of buy to let, you know, diehards on the show. So you kind of use your contacts and just ask them questions when you kind of have them instead of like trying to get all your information from one person yeah i would say whoever's most relevant you know if, if it's a damp problem in a house I'll, I'll text my mate dean who is a i don't know he's like a surveyor of some type if it's um about new builds i'll text someone who's done new builds so it's very 
appropriate to what I know they are very good at. Okay. And how, how did you actually get your first investor? My first investor. So I had probably been doing my podcast for a year, probably about eight months. I'd been doing my podcast and then maybe sort of, I don't know, four to six months I'd been building a brand on social media. So you might see the, hear this and say, oh, it's in a couple of months. This is posting every single day. This is creating video content. This is attending things like this, taking pictures of it, attending real ones, getting pictures with people, networking with people, uh, editing blogs, right? Like endlessly every single day for, you know, these kind of four to eight months and whilst podcasting during this time as well. And I put up an Instagram story. So as you'll know, stories are fleeting. 24 hours, they're gone. They're not, you know, like a, a permanent fixture on your profile unless you save them as a highlight. I just put up a post um, saying something like, I'm looking for X amount of money, you know, get in touch, something like that. And then two guys, met, or well, one of them on behalf of two of them messaged me back and forth, few messages, blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, we've been following you for nine months. Uh, blah, since you really, like, even before you like had anything cool, uh, I had an eight minute phone call. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, £57,000 in my account, terms signed, all good. And actually, they're getting paid back next week, depending on when the remortgage completes. Um, and it's been about a year. I think it's been 11 months since they invested. So it was as easy as that. But it took those many, many months before and consistently and constantly posting for them to take interest. But, you know, like to this day, I can put posts out like that and I'll get nothing. Put a post out and I get 20 people. Put a post I get. So whether it's like the timing of it and it fitted with their opportunity, whether it's like, you know, who knows, the gods of investment kind of picked me that day. I don't know. But um, yeah, it was it was as straightforward as that. But when you have a brand um, or at least people know you somewhat, you, know, you, you kind of hit those touch points already. So I guess with them, I'd done what, like, four or five out of the seven touch points and then conversation dms solicitor intro kind of made it to seven really so once you had done your first one did you feel like that made it a lot easier to do the next ones as in investors were more likely to help you and um say already done one they're able to be like okay then i trust you a bit more now you can have a have money and stuff like that yeah i would say so because the second like you know uh the second you can mention or talk about or even have a testimonial or even like a, a conversation between a current investor, as soon as you have proof that someone has given you money, now look, £57,000, for me, that's that was a purchase price. So that's pretty substantial. If you invest in London, add a zero, you know, it's the same thing, right? As soon as you have proof from like that investor, other people then see that and say, oh, okay tick you know someone else has trusted them okay and so it kind of elevates you a little bit but of course the world of social media the world of property so many people lie so it is easy to say oh yeah my first investor is another but if you've built your brand up like authentically along the way and then it slips in oh my first investor investor funded blah 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 it it definitely like turns the tables because after then speaking to different like, new investors and saying 
you know, do you want to speak to my first investors? Do you want to have a chat with them and, and see how we did things? Or, you know, oh, you know, they're getting this interest rate, they're doing this and that. You could just tell that people became a lot warmer with you. And I think it makes sense. You know, would you, you know, and this is my opinion, would you give your money to someone on their first deal, their first time, and no one else is invested in them? Maybe. And like, someone's got it right, because someone all, all gives us a chance. But I would say the majority of people don't. And they probably play it like safer than than that. Yeah. And if you don't mind me asking, um, what was the interest rate you normally would offer towards a um, investor? So it depends on the amount invested. Um, it depends on the potential for them to invest more. So say if someone gives me 10 grand, it's going to be a small interest rate. If someone gives me 250 grand, it's going to be a lot more. Um, so it really varies. It also varies on a discussion with them. So some people are happy to receive X amount and then some are happy to have Y amount and some are just silly and want some some stupid numbers all the way in space. So it always, always depends. I think like what I say to people is, you know, what is the interest rate that you as the invest, uh, you as the property investor borrowing like what works on your spreadsheet? You know, you could easily go out there and say, yeah, I'll give you 30% interest just to get an investor. Um, but if it doesn't work for your deal and it fails and you can't pay the investor back because you've used so much money to pay their interest, it doesn't work. So it has to be what works for you and what works for them. But a lot of the time, there's going to be a big disparity between that. Um, you're going to speak to 50 investors and have one who's actually sensible and they may invest in you. So can I just jump in there with a question on that, Ted? You know, with you know with the interest rates and you talk about like, say, different ones for different amounts invested, when it comes to like that first one, what, what do you suggest when trying to split that over? This is where I get confused sometimes with how the period time of paying that investment back, because you hear about it like in a year or like mainly a year, but then would people accept like 18 months? Would they accept two years? Or is it just kind of better to keep it shorter? What's your kind of opinions on that? So when it comes to length of loan, it, it's, it's basically up to you. Um, you just need to double check FCA rules because I believe if a loan is longer than 12 months, you have to tell HMRC. So some people, they do a loan for 12 months, pay it back, get it back, carry on. But just double check. I've heard somewhere, I haven't done anything longer than a year, but apparently you have to alert HMRC there's something longer than a year. But just talking about paperwork and just generally for now, uh, the longer the better. Because, you know, I've got it's like this first loan of £57,000. I should have paid this back six months ago. Like, and I would have. But we had a little something which shut everything down and I couldn't. Now, if I took that as a six-month loan, I'm six months overdue. Um, and I have done six-month loans before they've always extended. So it's it's kind of fortunate that they have, but I hate them. They just, yes, you know, you can do a BRR in, in two or three months. I've done one in three months, but most of mine, you know, have taken longer, especially with Corona, which no one expected. So I go 12 months as a minimum. I've stopped taking six month loans um, pre-Corona anyway, unless it was a flip project and, you know, there was room for extension. But I won't do six months. I'll always do 12, preferably 18. I know uh, people now who are saying we're only taking 24 month loans because we don't know what's happening with the market. Um, 
the more time and space you give yourself, I think the better you can perform. Also, if you happen to pay them back early, you know, you've kind of under promised and over delivered. So it looks better. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. So, Ted, you mentioned that your first investors was down to your podcast and your Instagram. Do you use any other social media to attract uh, investors or do you mainly just focus on Instagram? Mm, Instagram is my favorite because it's so easy to use. You can just chuck on the story, go on a live. It's just it's such a usable platform and it's so visual. So, again, it's I, I find it quite easy to create content and engage with people. I would say that I use Facebook. I've probably got about 40 to 50 percent of my investors or investment from Facebook. Uh, I would say that I use LinkedIn, but I just find it a bit stuffy and a bit boring. However, it is an incredible platform to find investors on. And I know, you know, not enough property investors are on LinkedIn or using it, whether that's because of their day job or because they don't understand it or whatever. But it is a great, great platform. Uh, I don't use, I do post occasionally on TikTok. I mainly use it to just like observe, but yeah, I don't really use it that much. Um, I think that I would say that the Instagram and Facebook are the main ones, but every investor, every person comes through TED Talks. They come through the brand um, or the podcast in some path, in some way. And uh, what, what were your biggest challenges? Oh, where do I start? Um, I think it'd be a, a, a better question would be what were the best parts because then it'll take two minutes. Um, so, what were the challenges? The main okay, the main challenge at the start was the mental or mindset of how am I going to get investors? Why is someone going to give me money? Why that? Like, how am I going to buy these houses when I haven't got the money? Or sure, I've had an offer accepted. Where's the money? And then as I got money, the mindset kind of changed, but it was still always a driving force. So I've bought, I can't remember how many at auction now, six, maybe maybe eight. And most of them I've purchased, bid, won it, exchanged, 28 days or 14 days. And I didn't have the money to complete. You know, and you kind of legally have to complete in 28 days. You can kind of piss around and buy 10 days, but really you've got 20 days to complete. Um... And I found the money every single time, but it was pretty stressful being like, okay, cool. Now it's, now it's the day after that's 27 days to find the money, get terms agreed, get it transferred whilst buying all these houses and managing all these refurbs. Okay. That was smart, Ted, wasn't it? And then I kept doing it. And to be honest, <laughs> I would still do it. Um, maybe it drives me, but that is a challenge and it's a challenge like, to have the confidence to then go to auction, do that without the money. But then sometimes you won't have the money before because people want to see a deal to then invest in. So getting that kind of chicken and egg, you know, like money deals, money deals, correct, is a challenge. And I don't think you ever sort of have it spot on. I think it's always a balancing act between the two. Um, speaking of balancing, I've at one point, and actually pretty recently, I'm sure I've had about six refurbs on the go at one time. Um, and I live 150 miles away from these places and I don't necessarily visit that much, maybe to my detriment. Uh, and that's a pain in the ass. Like dealing with builders full stop is infuriating. Um, dealing with them across six projects is is challenging, especially when it's all done on your mobile phone. 
Um, so balancing that has been very, very tricky. I've got better at it. I've got the hang of it a bit more. But it like to this day, it's still, it's still, it's still stressful. I'm managing three refurbs at the moment, um, and yeah, it is, it is a lot of work. Uh, another challenge, hmm. I think like it's just everything. Just you know <laughs> what? Just just trying to balance everything and not let things drop as you're focusing on this and as you're focusing on that, and then keep the relationships going and deliver people what you said you were going to deliver, ensure that investors are paid back on time, the interest is paid. Just balancing the stuff outside of refurb whilst doing the refurb and a podcast and social media is is very difficult. I mean, it's fun to an extent, but it is very difficult and it's very challenging. So I bet it kind of feels like plate spinning, like you're trying to leave all the, all the plates spinning. <laughs> Plates with like hot coals on them, with, with in, in gale force wind. That's what it feels like. Um, so you mentioned that your properties are actually quite a way away from you. Do you have anyone managing them over there? Did nope. Just... So I self. They're all buy to lets. So I self manage because really, you know, there isn't much management to do. You know, if if a light bulb breaks, well, go down to screw fix then mate. Get a new bulb. Um, you know, if the refurb is done right, which is a big if especially when you're starting out, there isn't much maintenance. I mean, one of my properties I've had for September. Oh, wow. Maybe um, I've owned it for maybe coming up to 12 months. It's probably had about eight months of rental income. That's eight months times it's about 370 on this one, I think. And I've had 10 pounds worth of maintenance on this house. Um, and he hasn't invoiced me yet for it. I'm still waiting for the invoice. So I've had another one of my houses about the same length of rent and about the same kind of profit, a bit less, we had to spend £600 on some guttering, scaffolding, all sorts of shit. I've had other ones, spent 100 quid here and there on maintenance, again, because the refill wasn't done right. I've got other ones, there's nothing. There's been not a single peep. Rent has been paid. Everything is good. So, you know, because of that, and because the, you know, buy-to-lets are quite minimal, I don't have anyone managing it. I have, you know, I text my builder, I text my plumber, go and fix this, mate. And to be honest, I'm going to outsource it to like a VA, like an in-house lettings team with like a VA I'm going to make. But it's it's really not that much work. I could, for the houses that are tenanted, I could be anywhere in the world and they would generate income. So it is, as as a side note, it is as passive as it could be. I know there's like a thing of, is it passive, is it not? It can be pretty passive. And obviously everyone makes mistakes. But is there any mistakes that you're trying to avoid ever making again because it's had such a big impact on you? Just property in general, mate, has destroyed me. <laughs> uh, no, I think like... Oh. Okay, I mean, there's lots of little mistakes, but I guess to, to summarise them, the biggest mistake I think I'm trying to avoid is... Uh, like... Okay, there's two. One, not making decisions quick enough. Um, I've had things where I need a new render, new roof, and I spend like two months just busy on other projects. And I was like, hold on, shh, this house has been sitting there empty, getting damper and damper. The hell? Oh, it's, you know, it's five grand, but forget it. I've, I've got to pay for it. I've got to, you know, in order to sell it, I've got to. And actually now it, it's selling for much higher. But 
that cost me months of interest, months of lost rent or income or opportunity costs, and just stress of like, oh, what's happening with the house? What's happening? Like what? And so, and then the same thing applies to builders, not firing my first build team quick enough. And now with the second team who are much better, or second guy now, he's fired everyone, um, not like getting in help quicker, just kind of being like, it's fine, they can do it. And underestimating things when really I should be quickly like, right, well, you're one man, you can do stuff, but you're one man with two hands. So I'm going to get you some more hands and which I'm doing, which is why, you know, I got a plaster and I'll doing bits. And so not acting quick enough. And I think the other mistake is like with refurbs, not spending on the correct stuff, you know, spending too much on spending 200 pounds on a black shower screen that matches the black matte taps, which looks freaking sexy. But I could have spent a couple a bit more and I would have been able to replaster one of the rooms and the viewers or people who want to buy it would have looked at it better. Or I could have put that towards the kitchen. Or So I kind of thought like, okay, well, it's swag. That's going to stand out. People are going to say, wow. And as much as they did, I guess it was at the detriment of other parts of the house. I didn't need to tile the whole bathroom. I could have done up to a meter. I could have done just the splashback and it would have got interest. And then I could have done the rest of the house better. Or, you know, not having like chrome sockets, um, not chasing sockets, uh, having the wrong type of carpet, not plastering walls that need to be plastering. Just like so many mistakes on refurbs that are inappropriate and have led to me probably making a loss on what was going to be my biggest profit flip um, and having to sell a house that I wanted to keep and having to keep one I wanted to sell, which sounds kind of easy peasy and stuff like that. But when you have a group structure and there's things in different places and you're keeping too much money in and this, it's like sometimes you spend hours just sitting there thinking, just staring at your spreadsheets, just thinking about what to do. So yeah, those two are the biggest mistakes of many, many. Many. <laughs> and... um. Obviously, when you're managing IBRR, it's obviously a lot of work. How did you actually learn you manage how to manage your project of that size? So you're talking about how to like project manage the refurb? Uh, <laughs> through trial and error and lots of fire, blood, sweat and tears. Lots of tears, lots of blood, lots of sweat. All mine, not the builders, which doesn't make any sense. They should be the ones sweating. Um, you know what? I... I, I don't know, you know, because before I didn't really have any PM experience. Ah, no, you know what? So I, I was a recruiter before my own business and I'd worked for companies being their recruiter. And I guess technically I project managed the recruitment process and I had oversight of it and software and I took it from A to B to hire and I was involved in each one and I knew how to manage. So I guess actually, and I've only just realized this literally right now, I've learned, I learned then how to manage processes and stuff and people so i guess i kind of took it from recruitment otherwise though in terms of like the specific managing property refurbs um i just learned and ah and i asked lots of questions why are we plastering that why are we using a fireboard why are we using a blue board um why are you tiling straight onto board uh why do you use multi-finish instead of this you know um what does a rewire actually mean you know oh what is a red um a black wire mean versus a gray one uh you know things like that like just always asking because i love construction and refurbs so now if someone comes in and says which i've not really had actually oh 
it's gonna cost you a couple quid that is geezer and i'm like no it's not i know what the process is do one whereas before i would have been like oh okay let me see how much is in the bank so by asking questions i think it's harder much harder to fool me and to kind of pull the wool over my eyes which means i can manage things a lot better and ask critical questions and understand i think with builders right when you understand kind of like that plastering does take a while but a rewire can be done in a day when you kind of understand that and you're kind of on and you don't say to them oh why is this taking so long because all they're going to say is that's how long it takes Tej. so i think once you understand that you can manage it a lot better because they, they don't think oh who's this posh idiot they think oh he understands what i'm actually doing Yeah, definitely. And you said that you phoned um, the builders. So do you have properties all around the country or is it in one specific area? No, so they're only in South Wales. Um, I'm moving to a different part of London, Hertfordshire. So I'm looking to do some like short leases, some creative stuff, some planning gain, um, some flips, obviously pending this crazy market that we're in. Mm. Yeah. How, how, how do you actually find your areas? How do you pick an area? So, um, Hertfordshire is geographically because I'm going to be there. But I would say um, rental demand, type of rental demand, uh, sales demand, because you need more than one exit on each property. And this is all online using like Rightmove and like home.co.uk, I think it is, and all these kind of data points. then I think you have to look at your gut feel. Like, how do you feel driving around this area? How are people looking at you? Are you scared to wear your watch? Are you scared to get out the car? Um, what kind of cars are on the road? Is everyone at home during the day in their gown, smoking, sitting on their doorstep? Um, what kind, And that's not a bad thing necessarily, because if that fits your strategy, then you're in a gold mine. Um, you know, what kind of area is it? Who wants to live here? Who wants to buy here? And then... You can do a lot of this from desktop. It's like, right, okay, let's look at properties on the market. Let's look at some recs. Firstly, is there an, if you want to do BRR, is there an abundance of value add properties? Now in Hertfordshire, there's, what, well, and I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, I, and I'm speaking to agents, there's not a lot of like shitholes. There's not a lot of recs. If they are, some local investor buys them at way too much. What there is, is short leases, land, creative stuff. Whereas in Yorkshire, in South Wales, there's tons of wrecks. There's tons of empty houses and things that are missing. So that's a distinction you have to make to inform your strategy, right? Central London, lease extension, you pay 100 grand for it, it could add 400 grand to the value. <laughs> you have done nothing. Your solicitor's done everything. Um, where I invest, you spend 20 grand on a refurb, we're adding 40, 50, 60 to the price. Um, so once you know that, you can go online, look at these shitholes and say, right, it's on for 60, but... Pff, Let's say I get it for 50. What's the end value? Okay, what's the refurb going to cost? Okay, blah, 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 blah. You can then work out, hmm, what's the potential of a BRR being possible here? Um, and you'll actually find in a lot of areas, it, it won't work. You'll say, it just doesn't work. And in some areas you will. And doing a combination of all those things, you'll find your area. Okay. And how long did your first BRR take? And was it much longer than how long it take you now? So, it took, how long in conveyancing? It took about a month and a half, two months in legals. Uh, It then took two months in refurb. It should have taken two weeks, but the deal sourcer was clueless. 
um, as most are, sorry, deal sources. Uh, and he was a terrible project manager. The builder was an idiot. Long story. And yeah, it took two months. And then we tenanted it pretty quick. A great tenant, actually, still about a month later. So at the kind of owned it, we, about three months, it was tenanted and generating cash. I waited six months to mortgage it because I think it was my first property. I would get a much better rate. I think it was like a free valuation or cash back. And I was like, hey, free, I'm in. Um, and so it took then about a month and a half to remortgage it, get the cash out. So it took about seven and a half, eight months. Um, my quickest one was three months and three days, which was, and it actually is my favorite property probably. It's gorgeous. Uh, that was amazing. Have I done that since? Fuck no. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, because of freaking builders and COVID. But I would say if ignoring COVID, let's just roll back nine months when things, when everything was great and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, pending your build team, you could do a 20K full refurb, you know, back to plaster or back to brick-ish, replumb, rewire, and have it refinanced, remortgage everything in about three months. Because that house was a 18 and a half grand refurb. It would have been 20 if it was a bigger house. Um, and it was meant to be a flip. So it can be as quick as you can kick people's ass to be quick enough. Um, so, yeah, um, my longest one probably, t- well, I've got some that are have been downvalued so much they aren't mortgageable by most lenders at the moment. So I'm having to wait and then go again. And, you know, when you're looking for um, a property or a BRR, do you aim to take all of your money out or what's the high? kind of ROI you'd be looking for when you're choosing one? So I'm always looking for a minimum ROI of 50 or return on cash left in of 50%. Um, so, I mean, I would say that most, I should actually track this across the portfolio. Most of mine are 50 to 100 to hunt like to, you know, 100 plus percent. I've got one, it's probably like 30 that kept too much in. Uh, I've got one that I may have to keep now, which is going to be like 18%, which is shocking. Um, I would say that most of mine, I leave in about five grand max. Um, the one that I don't like left, well, stayed in, sorry, left in about 12 grand. And the one that I'm having to keep that I don't, you know, we're leaving about 20 grand, I think. Five grand is the, what I aim for. Uh, some of mine have left in zero. In fact, I've had two recently where I put it in the spreadsheet. One of them I put in at 77 and a half. Um, it came back at 90. So that's quite quite a lot more. Another one I put in at 80 and that came back at 90. Quite a bit more. Those will leave in a lot less. Um, so it changes. It, it does change. But I aim for 5k no more than 5k, yeah. And last question that I've got that's written down. If you feel like a builder is becoming unreliable, how, how many chances do you give them? Or is it just, that's it, it's hedges done with you? I think they're unreliable from day one, to be honest. Um, no, I'm kidding. I love you builders. Please don't hate me. Um, I give everyone in life, I think, three strikes. Uh, but with, with, I guess with friends, like the strikes are huge. You know what I mean? It's not like, but whereas with professionals you're paying, the strikes are a lot smaller. Um... <sighs> The thing is, right, you have to hire slowly and fire fast, I think, in any in your business and in, in anything in property. 
So really, um, I would say you give them three chances. Now you decide how lean the three chances are. I mean, I had a Sparky before and, you know, he was annoying me and he was just chatting shit and I kind of caught him lying strike one. Um, <clears throat> there was some other stuff, blah, blah, blah. He tried to charge me for work he'd already done, which he didn't even do right. That was like strike three. I told him, listen, don't charge me. Don't ever. I said, don't even think like I just said, I said, go fuck yourself, basically, politely, maybe. Um, and he said, you won't hear from me ever again. I said, yeah, good. Um, and with other builders, I probably gave them like seven chances. I think, you know what? It's the thing is, I find with my builder, right? Like my current builder, he has a heart of gold. Like, and that is, I mean, that is very difficult to find, I think, in life. Right. And he'll always try and do what's right. But he doesn't always communicate it effectively. And he doesn't always communicate. You know, he'll lock up sometimes or he'll be immature, not in a, like a negative way with his communications. So sometimes what would have been a strike previously isn't because I know him. So base it off on um, what is happening currently um, with them and how they are as a person and your relationship with them. Don't just judge it off. Oh, they've done this. They've done that. Base it off how you know they're like. Um, but honestly, get rid of them sooner rather than later because it is costly. It's better that they didn't do the job than they bodged it because fixing someone else's job, tradespeople don't like it. They're like, oh, they don't want to put their name to it because it's not their work originally. Whereas if it wasn't done and they had to do it from scratch, then it's fine. It, it's a lot easier. It's a lot better that way. Thank you. That's everything we've got written down. Um, I don't know if Ben wants to hand it across to people to yeah, ask questions. Can do, yeah. I've seen a few questions come in the chat. Yeah, some great answers there. I've got a few myself as well that I'd like to run through. Thanks for that, Tidge. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, nice one, Tidge. There's one from Jeffrey. I don't know if you want to unmute your mic, Jeffrey, and answer it. Or I can ask it for you. If Jeffrey's there. Yeah, hi, I'm here. Um, so my question was just with regards to the whole COVID situation um, and what impact that's had on on the rental income overall sure so i would say it's had no significant income um effect and i would say the effect is negligible so what that means is i had so every month in covid before you know, rent was due i'd always send a text just hey how are things going and actually i probably sent the first text where i said look um how are things going with your job um, I understand lockdown is quite strict where you are. Uh, you know, do we need to sort of do something with rent? Um, obviously, I kind of, I kind of said, look, obviously it needs to be paid, and it, you know it has to be paid. But what can we, you know, do I need to help you out? And most of them pretty much said, look, you know, we've kind of lost a job, one of us has, or you know, we're on benefits now, or this, that, and the other. Anyways, and I kind of said, look, okay, um, what do you want to do? And they were like, no, look, it's fine. Um, we will pay the rent. So really. I've had it a few days late, you know, I've had it a few days late. I've had it paid on a Friday and the rest on a Monday because it's something to do with their bank accounts. But really, no one has not paid rent. No one has kicked up a fuss or refused or or anything. The rental income has not been affected. And I would say only a few of them have had their jobs kind of affected. Um, but yeah, I've been quite fortunate that there hasn't been any any issues with that it's good talk and just a quick one do you tend to remove your bike straight away 
when you say straight away, what do you mean? So straight after a refit. Yeah, so I will do it. Uh, well, uh, with some I've waited six months. Uh, some naturally have reached six months. But uh, yeah, I've just done two or three as soon as the refurb was ready and as soon as the value would co- could come out. So my ideal is a week before it's ready. So, you know, w- when the builder says it's ready in a week, that means two. So a week before the second one, I, I call the mortgage, you know, we do the mortgage and I say, right, let's book a valuation in a week in advance. So as soon as it's done, the cleaners are in, photos are done, the valuer walks in, values it, and we can get it remortgaged ASAP. That's what I aim to do. Um, and it's happened a, a fair amount of the time, but also it's been blocked because of COVID for some of them. That's great. Yeah, cheers, Andy. Good question. I hope that um, kind of summed that up for you. And then just one for myself, Tej, because... Uh, a point that you mentioned earlier, and it's a, a word that kind of spoke about a lot in the kind of property industry of like the whole process within buying a property and selling a property. And it was when like when I first started researching it, it was something that I couldn't really get to terms with was, and it's a word that you hear a lot and it's kind of the, and it's sometimes a bit negative and it's a word conveyancing. And there's a lot of people who are very new or just don't really know the understanding of that. And just to kind of give them, an insight into like what the kind of what conveyancing is and kind of the, the process and maybe how stressful that period of time can be when it comes to buying and selling a property. Sure. So conveyancing is the process or the legal process of solicitors or conveyances uh, checking, verifying, legalizing the property transaction um, and acting as a kind of legal official representation for each party uh conveyancing is is not like complex uh you know a lot of it is like the verifying due diligence communicating with answering to inquiries but basically it's a legal process between solicitor one who blames solicitor two for everything and solicitor two who blames solicitor one for everything um sending emails but deleting pretending they never arrived sending post recorded delivery oh but it never arrived that's basically what conveyancing is. Solicitors just avoiding each other at all costs. Um, and it's irritating because they do that. They blame each other. Um, there's no coherency to it. There's no kind of clarity on the process or where we're at. It is, you know, signatures have to be wet signatures sometimes. It's like we're in 2020. It's ridiculous. It's just a big legal jumble of you buying a property. Um, if your solicitor is annoying uh, and they don't communicate well and they don't chase properly and they don't pick up the phone or answer the phone, uh it's going to annoy you. Um, it's also going to annoy you because you're going to look at the process and say, hold on a minute, this can be done like in a very short period of time. Why are we taking three months to give me a set of keys for one property? Why? And I think, you know, uh, like, especially if you are uh, maybe of a younger generation where you're used to things happening instantly and the fact that technology does allow things to happen pretty quickly nowadays, it's very, very irritating. But it's simply the legal process of transferring the title deed, the legal ownership at land registry and, and on companies house sometimes from me, the seller to Ben, the buyer. Um, and that is what conveyancing is. Um, make sure you have a good solicitor. I have two that I use for different things. You can DM me and I can send you their details. Love it. Nice one, mate. That. Thank you. And then there's one from Thomas Robinson, but I think he just asked me to ask it for you. So it says, it says, hey, Tedge. Do you always take fixed rate mortgages when taking out new finance on your properties? 
And then also, what is your plan for when the fixed rate expires as this, along with how your interest rates might be at that time? Yep, always do a um, I've done five-year fixes on all of them, to be honest, because, hey, yeah, the interest rates could go down, although they're pretty low at the moment, um, although most lenders base it, you know, not necessarily off the Bank of England, so it, it's still three point you know whatever it is um if i do two years that means within a five-year period i'm gonna have to pay fees maybe evaluation all this crap again so i worked out on my spreadsheet that five years was better in terms of the overall cost it's like 15 quid a month extra but it, it just works out better and less stress and less, it's just easier um if interest rates are higher at the end of it then you know I, I guess I assume or hope that rents will be higher at the end of it as well. Um, but otherwise, you just got to, you know, you just got to deal with it. You just got to take that interest rate and and there's nothing you can do with it. And if they're crazy, then I'll do a tracker or I'll do a shorter fix or something like that. Um, or if it's crazy, crazy, I sell the property then. Great stuff. Hope that answers your question, Tom. Cheers, Tej. And then go on, guys, we'll answer your question. Yeah, awesome. So um, obviously at the start, you were just saying a bit about you've got, I don't know, six to eight properties from auctions. So I was just wondering, how do you go about finding all your properties for doing like buyer firm finance? Do you just rely on auctions? Do you like not pay attention to the sources at all? Or um, I don't pay attention to sources at all. Yeah, that's just a general, that's just a general thing. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, oh, I love making friends. So um, I use agents for a couple of them i need to actually track this because people always ask me but i would say the majority have been at auctions look 28 day completion or even better 14 day completion the legal pack is there no one can annoy you in this process like with conveyancing and legal no one's ever annoyed me because it's 28 days it's yes you got to pay the seller's legal fees and all that rubbish they chuck in the pack but like i will happily pay a little bit more at auction than i should for the benefit of a 28 day completion, give me the keys, let's get it refurb, let's get it cash flowing, as opposed to three months. Can we please have the documents back, please? Can we, you know what I mean? So, with auctions, um, I mean, there's a platform called EIG, I think. I don't use it, but if you're serious about auctions, it's definitely one to look at. It shows you past prices, if an auction lot is coming back round again, and you can, I think you can look at auctions all over the country in one place. I think it costs something a month. Um, Auctions are great because people put properties in there for a reason. If any one of you in this chat did a high-end refurb and you wanted to get market value, you're not going to put it in auction. You're going to stick it on the market because you know someone's going to walk in and say, wow, I love this house. Take my money. Auction, no, we're trying to chip away at getting the cheapest price. So houses are disgusting. They're falling through. They've got subsidence. They've got knotweed. They've got holes in the floor they've got staircases that break when you step on them i've seen all of these i've felt some of these so you can get some real wrecks in auction um and some weird legal stuff i've bought stuff very short leases um in auction so it's a great place to find things that other people run from but you know how to fix yeah no that's that's really really helpful and then my second question to that is obviously for the past couple of months property prices They've almost been just going up and it's been quite sustainable. So obviously everyone knew it was coming, but now that we're in confirmation that, we're in a re that we are in a recession, how do you think um, property prices will go on moving forward? Good question. Um, so I think 
that this sort of bubble will you know of people buying way over and offering way over will continue for i don't know how long but it will continue um obviously furloughs ending in october november everyone's looking at that as a well if so many people are losing their jobs and so many have already you know mortgage centers aren't going to be lending because you haven't got a salary and then people who've lost their jobs who have a mortgage it's gonna you know they're gonna default it'll take months of default and then they may get repossessed the government might say no repossessions who knows but basically what i'm trying to say is any effect just because of the nature of the world will take a bit of time to be felt so yeah furlough's going to end cool i don't think there'll be any instant issues that there'll be some but i think it'll take time to really feel them and hey if rishi props it up again great but there is a lot of propped up money and it kind of feels like we're carrying the economy and your arms are getting tired and tired and tired and what happens when you know stuff gets dropped that's what it feels like looking at different bits of data and speaking to people who are way more well informed on this than me i think there'll be a drop correction whatever at some point i mean we're already seeing things and actually if, if someone i know who's buying a residential property had an offer accepted for i don't know 400 the mortgage surveyor comes in and says this is worth 370 that's all we're gonna loan you off and i don't know about you but like surveyors doing that on a residential or on a mortgage is kind of weird normally they just come in kick the wall yep this is a house you're paying how much for it 400 it's kind of how much it's worth so it's very weird to kind of um hear that now the mortgage company's not going to loan the original money that's a bit of a warning site that's one case out of millions whatever but that is going to happen more and more. Sellers are like, yeah, we're selling our properties above market value to the first person. But when that valuer comes in and says, hold on a minute, everything on this street is sold for 115. You haven't got a toilet made out of marble. This is the same quality. We're going to lend you 115. So th- I think there's a disparity. And again, this will take a few months to drop out. But there'll be some drop, I think, I feel. Don't hold me to it. Cool. Nice one. Thank you. And I think Don has a question, Dylan. Hi Tej, so uh, just like your podcast, we actually set up this group because we believe in like some free education because there's a lot of people out there charging like thousands of pounds for courses and stuff like that. And I just wondered, have you ever paid for any education and what do you think about, what do you think about paid education compared to asking different people through DMs and stuff like that, do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, I haven't paid for any education ever. Uh, uh, nope, I spent £97 on a fca compliance investor course which was incredibly exciting as you can imagine fca compliance um but no i haven't spent any money i spent on books and you know meetups and buying people nando so i have this thing called a nando's budget so there's there's two options you spend two grand on a course let, let, or let's just say a grand because they, they've got cheaper now i think let's say you spend a grand you could take that grand and how much is a nando's 11 pound 10 for one you know let's just set it for example how many Nandos could you buy people you want to learn from and get an hour of their time for that money? Now, that's what I did, but it took way longer. Now, if I'd paid money for a good course, which is a challenge in itself, you know, I'd be 10 more properties in. Maybe, maybe. So for me, yes, you can save that money. You can do it the organic way, like what I did, over time and build those relationships, which I prefer. But honestly, looking back, like if there, if I had a course that was good enough, I could have 
saved a lot of time. So my argument is, look, if you can find a good course, if you can find someone you believe in, you trust, that they're actually buying property. They're not a marketer, you know, they're not a magician. They are actually buying property and you can see it and you believe it and you like them when you meet them and they're not trying to sell to you and their main business is buying property, but they happen to do a bit of training, in my opinion, that's the kind of person you should go for because they're not concerned about selling you a course. They're concerned about, fuck, we've got a leak on site one. We've got this on site two. Like, that's who I want to learn from. So if you can find good education, absolutely pay for it. It's cheaper than a degree. It gives you a lot more than a freaking degree. I'll tell you that. Um, but if you haven't, then go with a Nando's budget. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm sure as well, with that much money, you'd get a lot more connections when you have so probably better to do that especially since monday to wednesday it's 50 percent off now exactly sharing <laughs> platters for everyone mate <laughs> nah, thank you i love it nice one done um then there's another question here from jeffrey again which kind of fits into quite a good one um i've got a question to kind of follow on from that as well so don't know if jeffrey you want to mute yourself to answer that ask that sorry yeah sure um so it was just a question about how you go about building your team so builders, solicitors, electricians, what's the approach you take to sort of building, building your refurb team? And can I add to that as well, Tej, about build team? How would you build team outside of your area as well? So investing in a new area to add to that question. Sure. So I'll cover this in as much detail as I can. However, in my new book, a little plug, everyone DM me on Instagram. I'll send you a link for the waiting list. I cover this in like 10 pages. Um, the key is networking. Um, and networking is as simple as building a brand, going to events, commenting on stuff, posting in groups. Can anyone recommend me a painter that they've used before, please? You get a whole list of tradespeople. Great. Go on their Facebook page. Look at their reviews. Great. Go back to the original person who referred. Hey, mate, how, you know, any complaints, any issues? How are they on site? Cool. If you keep doing that over and over again, painter, builder, plasterer, boom. I've got a spreadsheet this long full of tradespeople. And I've got another list this long, my red list, full of scumbags, right? But that's only come from networking and from some people saying, Ted, look out for this builder and, and, and vice versa. Um, so really it's networking. It's asking at events, you know, look, the, the kind of truth is, right? If I had a master builder who had, like, let's say, 10, 10 people working for him and I was at my prime back in my youthful days um, and I had six refurbs at once, you're not getting my builder's number. You can do one. You're not because... He's too busy for you, mate. I've got him on six properties. That's the truth. And most investors are going to say the same thing. But there's a lot of investors or sources who do one a month, one every few months. And they're like, hey, I've got a great builder. I can't give him enough work. I really like them. Here's the number, you know, or oh, I use this plaster. Here's the number. So it's all about networking. Um, most tradespeople don't have uh, websites. They have Gmails. They have very limited technological stuff. They don't have an all dancing website. Get on their Facebook business page, look at the reviews, look at the pictures, go look at their work. Um, and then to other people in your team, it's kind of like networking and also referral based. Like referrals are so, so important. Who do you know? You know, have, here's the key thing. If someone gives you a solicitor, you need to say to them, okay, have you used them before? No. So why the hell are you referring them then? Next. Have you used them before? Yeah, we've done about four deals together. Amazing. Did they all complete on time? Did they respond to your messages? Any complaints? Any feedback? No. Oh, wow. Sorted. I'll speak to them, you know. Um, or look at someone who's got a brand who's buying loads of houses and say, hold on a minute. 
you're not complaining about your solicitors once. That means they must be good. Can I have their details? And people are going to share their solicitor details because, you know, solicitors are always slightly slow no matter what. Um, same with brokers, you know. Uh, there's so many out there. You put a post up. Hi, we can assist. We cover all of market. Please give me income. Oh, God. So many of them say the same thing. Look for brokers who have a brand, who do something different, who give you free knowledge. You can't contact 90% of these lenders yourself anyway. So when brokers hide things and act as, like go for people who you can see and trust and like and can see their brand. Um, but networking, you know, your network. Ask me for anyone in my power team. You can have them. I've used them X number of times, so you know they're good. Um, but if then if, if this is the first time, I'll say, look, I've used them once. You know, take it or leave it. Do your thing. Like I can't vouch for them. But my sisters right now, I will vouch for them. I will say to you, a hundred percent, they're great. But it's all come from my network. There are other ways, but network is the easiest and most central way to do it. Cheers, Tej. Yeah, that's great. And it's like saying, go, your network is your net worth. And it's um, so powerful. And obviously doing things like this and just building up your network and attending events, like you said before, obviously physical events, uh, a bit on the latter at the minute, but I'm sure they'll pick up hopefully in the next year or so. Yeah, to try and get yourself them or take Tedge out for a Nando's. That seems to work quite well. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got a few more questions if you have a little bit of time, Ted, just to get through. Um, so my question was something you touched on earlier. Um, you said that you start the refinance process after you refurb. So on my first buy to let, I purchased on a bridging loan and I it was actually more cost effective and I was advised by my broker to wait the six months before starting the process. So I wondered if um, when you purchase, do you just factor the early repayment fees into your um, initial numbers so that you know as soon as that refurb's done you can go straight to refinance so a bridging loan shouldn't have any early redemption charges if it does i think personally it's a shit product and they shouldn't be advising you to take it and there's an exit fee potentially which is kind of normal but there shouldn't be an erc fee like there is for a mortgage because a bridge is literally anywhere from you know a month to sort of 12 like or maybe a bit longer so it is literally just meant to be a bridge. So it's weird. Um, I'd love to know who the lender is. You can DM me. You don't have to say it here. Um, who has ERCs? What I'd say is, on a general answer to that, I factor in six to eight months interest on my original spreadsheet. So when I when I tell you, oh, I've got, you know, three grand left in, that includes, you know, six months of interest. So my deals are quite tight in the sense that, yeah, I could do it in three months, could do it in four, could do it in five. But I always factor in six months of bridging level, so more expensive interest, um, into the equation. So yeah, there shouldn't be any ERCs with a bridge. Interesting. Thank you, Terj. Uh, cheers, Sarah. And then the next one came from Dan. Do you want to unmute yourself or I can ask it for you? I'll ask it, it's fine. Um, first of all, thanks a lot, Ted, for all the content you put out. I'm sure everybody agrees. You know, you've a massive, massive help. Um, I've seen that you've got an essay, so usually you're more into the BRR. And um, I just wondered how you've changed into that um, strategy for that property and what sort of like due diligence change was that as well from, from for that particular property? Sure. Uh, thanks, man. Good. I'm glad it helps. I'm glad it helps people. So, yeah. Uh, so most of my properties are bought in places where essay just would not work, like at all. 
uh, or, it would, or it might work on a hospitality basis, but there's no one around to manage it. So finally, I got one in like a town centre, lovely sea view, actually. I've stayed in it myself. Um, and I just, I think I kind of looked at it and thought, hmm, why don't I do something different? You know, I, it can't be a HMO, uh, even though the kind of students are around there. So I, something happened. Maybe I met the essay managers, maybe... I had a guest on my... Something just triggered something in me. I can't remember what it was. Um, and so I looked at things like AirDNA. I looked at Airbnb, Booking.com, looked at the average nightly rate, um, took it down to a certain percentage and said, right, is this going to work? I spoke to local SA managers and said, look, right, what are you achieving in this kind of house in this area? And I said, all right, does that work? Let me take 100 quid off what they said. Does this work? Okay, fine, it works. How much have I got to spend on furniture? Where can I find it? So... There was due diligence, but honestly, not as much DD as maybe I do now on an essay, but it's been the most passive investment um, because it's managed. I hear nothing. I mean, once a month I get the invoice, I get paid. It's it's great, really. Um, you know, what kind of maybe changes? Nothing. I mean, the house is refurbed pretty much how I would do a buy to let um yeah I mean it was I should have done more DD I'll say that but I just knew from the area and from people I know doing it locally I just knew it was going to work because I knew the area well so I'd already done the DD separately and it kind of all came together okay thanks for that appreciate it fantastic happy days and then next one's from Steve if you want to ask it, Steve. Hello. Sorry if you can't hear me. There's a load of traffic in the background. Um, <laughs> just wanted to ask. I've heard you talk about Japanese knotweed quite a lot on your podcast. And everybody else avoids it like the plague. So just wondering what you know that all of us don't know. Um, well, uh, did you know it was brought to this country, I think, in the Victorian times as an ornamental plant? And people used to grow it indoors. And they chucked it out when it got too big. And now look at the state of the fucking country. Um, so it is a highly invasive species. Uh, I don't think it's the most, but it is one of the highly most highly invasive species. Um, it, If it grows close to the house or can get underneath it, it can disrupt the foundations. Um, I've only ever heard of one case of that happening. And actually... <laughs> We don't know if the foundations were actually affected, but scientifically and, you know, structurally, it can destroy your foundations and therefore make your property unmortgageable. There's four risk categories. The further away it is basically the sort of um, lower risk it is. Houses with knotweed are mortgageable as long as they have a certain treatment plan over X many years and it's insurance backed from a proper provider. However, if it's like danger close, like you walk out your door, boom, and it's there you may struggle to get a loan on it. Um, even certain lenders who will loan on anything may not take a view on it. However, if it's, if they say sort of beyond the seven meters, it's kind of fine. Um, but it really, de- you know, it, actually, it depends on you. So your personal lending profile, your portfolio, what your broker says, um, and the distance and the size of it. Um, it isn't, I, I don't think you can destroy it. You can treat it spray chemicals on it and just make it look ugly but 
it can work. You know, would I buy knotweed danger close outside the house? <laughs> Unless it was a crazy, crazy good deal, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be convinced. Also, I, I and again, I may not be correct here. Broker needs to interject. If I was going to buy it with knotweed, I'd want an end value above 100k just to open up the number of lenders who can give it because it's already restricted because of that. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it's scary and all that stuff, but get your measuring tape out and work out if it's mortgageable or not. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Happy days. Happy days. I wonder if that's, is, is Japanese not really going to be mentioned in your book at all, Tej? You know what? I don't think I've mentioned it. Mm. I actually haven't. That's, because I haven't actually got a house with it, as much as I try and try, <laughs> I, I just forget about it until I see it everywhere. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Happy days. That's right, just a couple more questions. So there's one from Lewis. From yeah. Hi, Pez. Um, I've just got a quick one. Um, just wondering why you're not a big fan of property sources. I don't know, a lot of us younger people, it's like one of the easiest ways of getting into property. And what you would suggest otherwise if you don't think property sourcing is the right way to go. So I agree. And I think property sourcing is maybe not the easiest, but it's definitely the most logical way. If you want to buy houses or buy property, it's it's the best way um, because you are basically doing everything except for owning it yourself. So when it comes to owning it and you walk into the estate agency saying, right, I'm buying more houses, you've just walked in a brown paper bag full of cash. You're paying their commission. Um, you learn how to source, you learn how to view properties to negotiate it. It is like incredible. Like it's such a good experience for you then buying it. And also you build up an investor list who may, invest. you know, great way to get into it. But because it's so easy to get into, like any job that has a low barrier to entry, you get a higher percentage of people who are crap at it or who don't care. Um, so for me, a lot of people get into it like, oh, let's just source a couple deals, make a couple grand. And then we'll, we'll get into property, which is fine. But they bring that attitude to the day to day of running a sourcing business instead of doing it passionately or doing it properly. It's just like, right, we just need three deals and then we can quit our jobs and buy property. And it's like, well, hold on. If I'm buying a deal off you, I don't give a shit about your ambitions. Like I'm, you know, I'm here to buy my house and I want you to put my interest first because I'm paying you. And so I just think there's a bit of a disparity. Uh, but also, like, a lot of sources will go on Rightmove. Houses up for up for 100k, for example. They'll send you the link. Hi, Tej. Incredible deal. 97 grand we've secured the price for. Oh, yeah, plus a 3k sourcing fee. Let me do some basic maths there. Is that a discount? So, I think, you know, a, a few of them give the whole thing a bad name. But because it's easy to get into as such, naturally you have a bigger percentage of bad apples. Have I met a sourcer who sent me actually off-market stuff that I haven't instantly put into Rightmove and sent them back the link and said, is this what you're trying to sell me? I I can think of one, I can think of one or two sources who do that out of, you name it, hundreds? No, awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. Love that, love that, yeah. Um, now there's one last question before I've got to cover off two points just before we wrap up, Tej. And the last one coming from the guests is just Jeffrey again, if you want to mute yourself. And ask uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry for monopolizing all the questions. <laughs> um, just the question about how you've organized yourself, Tej. Um, whether you're buying your property for a limited limited company versus buying personally, and the implications of 
I am buying limited company, so one for my flips, which is actually going to end up holding two properties, and one for my holders. Now, eventually, when I'm ready to spend money on it, it's going to have a group structure. So, Tedge holds, Tedge flips, we'll have Tedge holding group limited on top, owning both, because you can do some like accounting stuff, you can offset losses. But also, if I need to transfer a property from the flip one, because I've decided to keep it, I can transfer it a lot easier. So yeah, limited company, which you know is annoying. You've got much higher interest rates um, than personal name, but it's kind of the best way to extract money from the property. You know, you can have expenses, you have dividends, you have different things like that. It's kind of the way that I guess we're being forced to do it. I think if you're going to buy more than a couple, and this is not uh, legal advice, I'm not an accountant or financial or anything like that, it is better to have it in a limited company. But I'm not an accountant. Cool. Yeah, perfect. Cheers, Tedge. And then, so one of the last two points, what I was going to get on to then, and you kind of touched on one just then, what you just put in the chat, is about your book. Um, just to kind of give an idea, I don't know if people have seen it, if you, what, you're releasing a book, just kind of, there's a sum of what kind of the book's about, who it could be for, and like, what's it going to entail to see what people, if they're interested in, because I know I'm, I think I'm on the list anyway, if I've not the end of you already. Um, I can't wait for it. But yeah, just to kind of give, um, an overview of what it's going to be about to kind of give people an idea. Sure. So it is going to be, uh, let's call it the guide to building a profitable property business slash the BRR model. So I talk about the BRR model, but I cover mindset. I cover company foundations, networking. Basically, I hope that it is going to give at least 80% of what you'd learn on a course or what you'd learn from people, but in a much more concise direct somewhat blunt way for you know 10 or 15 quid so i'm literally saying you know is all of it on my social media some of it is but this is literally right here's how to vet a builder here's 10 questions here's how to assess their work here's 10 things grout lines smoothness of uh, plastered finish to look for um here's a draft role play between me and an estate agent here's the little things i say that get them interested so it's it's kind of giving my whole process from the start to finish to getting it rented, getting it refinanced, plus my insurance broker, my finance broker, my solicitor and my accountant all have a section at the back about, you know, their stuff. And my insurance broker has written like four pages on property insurance. So it's got all my stuff plus bonuses from the professionals. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 giving away a lot, I think. Mm, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're going to be changing the game up a little bit when that comes out. And I think it's... Well, um, you heard it here first. Um, but no, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's kind of what sounds good about it, even if it's not the children's strategy that you may be doing. I think as a collective, as a book, it's going to cover many points that you probably need to know just within property investing in general. So I think it's kind of suited for anyone really who's going to be in the property industry or if you just wanted to learn more about the process of just property investing. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. And then kind of talking about your process, and one last question is what I'll ask yourself and talk about your process in general. If you could go back and you could start over again, what would you do differently? <laughs> I would implement more processes, strict scope of works, strict, uh, strict timelines, um, better contracts or contracts full stop uh, with people of my build team i would make friends quicker or get people to do site visits for me every week across all these refurbs pay them you know whatever needed or help them education wise which i do at the moment 
way earlier on instead of relying on pictures because I've been fooled by pictures many, many times before only to get there, turn the tap on, there's no freaking water, open a kitchen cupboard. Whoa, where the heck? What is this? like so many times? So having a stricter process, I'm not good at being process driven. I'm a bit erratic. Maybe you, you probably tell by the way I talk and stuff, but my mind's all over the place. And I need it from the beginning to make that into a strict process uh, with a system and outsource some of it as well. Wicked. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And again, talking about amazing, that was an amazing call again. And I appreciate your time, Ted, and you've covered some really good points. I hope everyone else has enjoyed it as well. I appreciate everyone joining us on a Sunday night as well. I know it's a Sunday, it's the end of your weekend, but I hope it's kind of a good start or a good end of the week to start your next week great. And I look forward to hopefully seeing a few more new faces at the next one. Um, more will become uncovered. If you don't follow us on the Future Minds Network, where we release all the content on our Facebook page, please give us a follow and you can learn more about that. But if you are new or if you are a general turn up, uh, well, a, a general, I don't know, I'm going to say a word that could have sounded really wrong. So I'm not going to say that. A general person who comes all the time. <laughs> um so yeah, I appreciate everyone's time and yeah, and I'm just quick, little... just quickly, if you send us a DM and we'll send you the uh, link for the Telegram group if you're not already in there. Yes, it'll be great to have you there. So yeah, again, thank you very much, Ted, and I thank everyone again. Me and the team are going to stay behind for a couple of minutes. I don't know if there's any last final words from you, Ted. Just follow my podcast and buy my book. <laughs> you said it for me thanks so much for having me Ben I really appreciate it thanks everyone for, for being so engaging I really appreciate it not a problem yeah, thank you for coming on yeah massive thanks thank you. if you like this podcast connect with Tej on Facebook LinkedIn and YouTube for more great content